You've got to find ways to adapt and reinvent yourself and stay relevant. Right. So people say, oh, Jeff, you're the rave guy. Uh, uh, maybe. Oh, Jeff, you're the classic rock guy. Uh, well, yeah, maybe. Oh, Jeff, you're the alternative guy. Right. Well, yeah. Wait, you're the Cowboys guy. You're the stars guy. You know what? Yeah. I'm just a fan of music. I'm a fan of sports. And knock on wood, I found a way to get paid for doing stuff that I love. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard Radio Flyer with nonstop service around the world. Heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and now YouTube. Your safety and comfort is important to us, so please direct your attention to your pilot and host, Freddie Rivera. You know, I was born in California, but I lived in Texas a few times. The first time I went to Texas, it was during the fifth grade with my parents. I lived in Houston, Deer Park, LaPorte, came back to California, went back to Texas again, but this time found myself in the beautiful city of Austin, which I consider second home. Uh, Came back to California and then eventually moved back once again to Dallas for my job. At the time, while I was in Dallas, I met in particular the guy who's on the show tonight. I'm talking about Jeff K. Let me start with this. He's the announcer for the Dallas Cowboys. He's the announcer for the Dallas Stars hockey team. He's in Dallas radio. He was also on Groove Radio here in L.A. Is this a good place to begin, Jeff? Uh, first of all, I'm sorry you had to spend some time in Houston. None of us should be subject <laughs> to that. Uh, but second of all, hopefully you had a great time in Dallas. You know, uh, I'm not originally from Texas, um, but I got here as fast as I could, as they say. I uh, met my wife here. My daughter was born here. I've lived here longer than anywhere else. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of a naturalized Texan. But uh, the, the couple of years I had out on the West Coast in Los Angeles uh, were uh, two of the greatest years I ever had in radio. I, I called it Techno Summer Camp because I got to work at Groove Radio, which is, you know, some of the folks. Which, by the way, is the coolest thing ever because Groove Radio uh some of the greatest jocks and DJs were on. It was 103.1 Groove Radio here in L.A. for a short while, right? Yeah, it was on from 96 to 98, and it was championed by Swedish Eagle, who's now on uh, Sirius XM on First Wave. Yes. And it was really Eagle's brainchild. Eagle actually had another station in L.A. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Mars FM. I want to say that was kind of like 91, 92, around the same time that I started my techno remix show on the edge in dallas in, in 1991 okay that's how we knew each other we kept in touch for half a decade you know he kept telling me jeff my friend i'm going to get another station like mars and when i put it on the air you're coming out here and you're going to you're going to do your thing like you do on saturday night but we're going to do it 24 hours a day and uh, they put 1031 on the air as groove radio it was the country's first <clears throat> all this was underground house music and it was rave culture and uh, we were really giving K-Rock a run for their money in the mid-90s because K-Rock was playing the Prodigy and Chemical Brothers and Fat Boy Slim right, and, right. You know, all that. And so, but that was really our bread and butter as well. And so, uh, you know, Eagle said, hey, I got a job. I got a position. If you want to get out here to L.A. Let's talk about the scene for a little bit because it was the beginning of something huge. What was that scene like? Well, I got to tell you, I mean, California, Los Angeles really was the mecca for rave culture in the mid 90s. I mean, uh, if you find people that know the history of rave culture in America, uh, they will mention Dallas. Dallas was put on the map. I I feel somewhat responsible for it because we had that hundred thousand watt blowtorch on Saturday nights. And uh, anytime a a, a rave like act would come to town, whether it be the prodigy or or Moby or, or people like that, we would bring them up on the mix show on Saturday night and kind of give them that exposure in the Southwest. 
But when I was able to go to L.A. and I was able to uh, meet guys like Jason Bentley and uh, and the Golden Voice crew uh, and uh, actually take part in some of those uh, crazy raves in uh, L.A. in the mid 90s. We even did one on on Venice Beach, that memorable rave. Uh, It really was I felt like I was really in the. you know, the heart of the American rave culture at the time. It really was two years of my radio career that I look back on the most fondly because it was just so much fun. You not only uh, were able to go and and enjoy the scene, but you actually worked in the scene, so you had a reason to be there. How did that work, though? In in those days, here in L.A., in in the 90s, did they just rent out a warehouse and they created a stage? Where where were these raves at, like, particularly? I would tell you that a lot of these raves were were not 100% legit or legal. You know, this was, uh, you know, you find a space and you uh, bring the sound system and you crank it up and you hope that, uh, you know, the police don't show up. I know some of those those raves on Venice Beach weren't uh, 100% legal. That was half <laughs> the fun, was feeling like you were actually exactly. you know, doing something a, a little risky. Yep. Um, by the end of, of my two years in L.A., by 98, things were very organized and they were doing them at all the, the, the you know at the fairgrounds and, and Big Bear and the rave scene uh, was something that kind of evolved over the couple of years that I was out there. But uh, it was more of a, a you know Groove Radio would do club nights probably five nights a week. You know uh, the yeah. jocks would be out the various clubs and again since we were kind of the uh, the club culture radio station we weren't playing the pop stuff we were playing more the underground stuff. It really it really was a great time. Was it really as crazy as people talked about? Yeah, and from what I can remember. Um, Yeah, no, L.A., and here's the thing about L.A., like getting out to L.A. from Dallas, you had to really be careful. I mean, L.A. can chew you up and spit you out. You know, there's always somebody that's trying to hand you something or offer you something, and if you're not careful, you can go down the the dark side of rave culture. And so it was was all I could do to try to make sure that 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 didn't happen to me. But, um, yeah, this was also, too, uh, around the time that the MDMA was probably the purest and strongest. You know, we we had uh, in Dallas – uh, a club called the Star Club that was very popular in the mid '80s when you could actually get MDMA prescribed to you, and that was wow. the strongest ecstasy that you would ever take. And of course, you you may know the story how the Star Club got busted for for ecstasy. You know, it was it was pretty it was pretty well documented that um, you needed certain things to help you dance all night. So yeah, it was to answer your question. Yes, it was a crazy scene, but it was a legit scene. It was a fun scene, and and people look back on it very fondly. I'm curious though, what happened to the Star Club? Because I didn't hear that story of how it got busted. Yeah, well, the Star Club got a reputation in the uh, the mid to late '80s in Dallas as a place where you know uh, it was unisex bathrooms and you know free love right 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 drugs and yeah you know a lot of times uh, celebrities would come to uh, dallas they would go to the stark club so the stark developed a reputation and i think maybe the uh the local police department was uh feeling the heat that they weren't really paying enough attention to this it started kind of bubbling up and uh they they raided the place and uh, when they did uh they found uh Drugs all over the floor, yeah. and uh, a lot of people spent the night in jail. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The legendary. Wow. But here, here's how. I, here's how I like to remember the Star Club. The Star Club for me, uh, there was. There's two eras for the Star. There's a mid '80s Star with a DJ by the name of Rick Squalante, and he played more of kind of like new wave extended mixes and such. 
legendary guy, legendary club. But when he left, the club was taken over by a DJ by the name of Mike Dupriest. His nickname was Go-Go. We called okay. him Go-Go Mike. And what he did is he actually brought to Dallas the records that were breaking in places like Chicago and Detroit, even Acid House remixes from the UK. Wow. What he did in 88 and 89 was he gave us that summer of love kind of at the same time that the UK was experiencing their summer of love part two with their acid house and rave culture in the late eighties. And so when I look back at the star club, I don't think about the drugs. I think about my, my, my great musical awakening. Because before then, I was doing a radio show on community radio. It was my first ever radio gig. And I was into industrial dance music, ministry, revolting cocks, Nine Inch Nails. And when I started going to the Star Club and listening to Mike Dupriest and learning the art of DJing and blending records and mixing and creating that imaginary third record, he was able to bring people onto the dance floor of all different cultures and races and uh, religions and backgrounds and we'd all get together and we you know we dance and we'd sing and so it really was uh like a house music education and a club culture revolution so that's what i i look back on the star club less for the drugs and more for the the fact that we were given a great education on house music in the late 80s and it influenced a second generation of djs that are still going strong in dallas today like dj red eye who djs it it'll do he's one of the the, the best most famous underground DJs. He was my intern on my mix show on the edge. That's cool. A couple of years in early in the early nineties. I know I'm, I'm driving all over the place here, but yeah, no, the star club was a fantastic club and really put Dallas on the map too. Well, what you were saying kind of leads me to the next question is uh, you uh, were able to network with a lot of big DJs and a lot of talents. Who were some of the DJs that you can recall that you met early on and they just, you know, they took off and they blew up uh, afterwards. So uh, one of the first DJs that I ever had on my uh, mix show in the 90s was a, a guy by the name of DJ Baby G, Jorge Garza, uh, just a Dallas kid that wound up becoming the 1990 DMC U.S. champion. Do you remember the uh, the DMC where they had DJ battles? Yep. They mix and scratch and cut and go behind their back and do, a, you know. Yeah, so he not only won the regional in Dallas, but he won the U.S., and then he went on to the Worlds, where I think he placed like third or something. So he was one of the first DJs. He went on to bigger and better things. Another DJ was DJ Zero, who's another Dallas kid that wound up DJing with MC 900 Foot Jesus. You remember, <laughs> they had a big hit uh, in the mid-90s called uh, The City Sleeps. They used to play it all the time on MTV in 120 minutes. Uh, another guy that went on to become very famous. Uh, like I said, Red Eye was my... Uh, was my intern, my first intern on the mix That's show. very cool. Also, uh, you know, DJs like Paul Oakenfold. We developed relationships with guys like Paul Oakenfold early on in Dallas. Uh, also, when Moby was a DJ, uh, he would come to Dallas. He would hang out on the show for a while. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, Norman Cook, yeah. Fat Boy Slim, is a yeah. guy that, uh, you know, kind of anytime he'd come to Dallas, he'd come up on the mix show on the edge. Did you put yourself right. on mix shows as well? And would you DJ these two? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was my mix show. So yeah. it was a five-hour show. But what I would do at, at midnight is I, I would have the midnight mix where I would bring a guest DJ on. Right, right. Because my, my vibe was to expose all this great talent in Dallas, also allow these uh, yes. national touring DJs. But that's the thing you have is you have your own mix show. So you're able to network with a lot of these big DJs around the world, but you're able to tap into the local market and discover new talent that's you know next door to you as well. That's a right. pretty cool gig to have. 
Yeah, no, I was very fortunate to uh, to somehow convince the the folks at the edge that not only did they need a mix show on Saturday nights, but uh, they didn't need to worry about programming it, that I could mix it. I could host it. Yeah, they like that. You know, in radio, the less people doing more work, the better. Right. So that was fun. And so I just kept playing crazier and crazier underground stuff, thinking maybe one day they'll tell me to throw on a Depeche remix or whatever. And <laughs> early on in the show, I would do that. The show started at nine, would go till two. First hour would be the Depeche remixes or the New Order remixes. But as we kind of got later on in the evening, it was really, you know, the the, the height of the, the rave, early rave stuff, which got pretty silly as well as pretty crazy i do you, do you remember the records where they would take like the sesame, sesame yes tetris and all that yep toy town rave i think is what they called it you know i still yeah, have that those vinyl records uh in in my crate right next door i still i should have busted them out <laughs> so, i was so excited to talk to you about this uh scene i forgot to even you know begin the interview with starting about yeah asking you where are you from so i grew up in new jersey my dad had moved to uh texas when i was a sophomore in high school Spent the summer of 1980, I think there was like 30 days of temperatures at 110 or above. And I thought that was the most awesome thing because all I had to do was lay around by the pool. The right. Yeah. When you grow up in New Jersey and you move to Dallas, obviously uh, the women in Dallas are beautiful. Nothing against Jersey girls, but come on, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, also, 1980, uh, the number one movie in the country was uh, the uh, Urban Cowboy movie with John Travolta. Okay. The number one TV show was Dallas. And this was when the Dallas Cowboys were winning Super Bowls, too. Right. You know? So it's like Dallas, to me, was the center of the universe. Yeah. I was going to leave New Jersey and go live with my dad in Dallas. Yeah. So that's uh, that's kind of why I, I moved here. And I went to UT Arlington and took radio TV classes and then got on it the, the, the first show, the industrial yeah. show at KNON. So how did Groove Radio end? And, and, and how was that transition coming back to Texas? Uh, well, it wasn't great for me. As you know, it's tough when you've got a cutting edge format to be able to sell it and right. sell it on a regular basis. Your salespeople want you to uh, uh, get some great ratings and they want you to be able to uh, to be able to sell those ratings to potential advertisers. And when you're out there on the cutting edge, uh, sometimes you just have to serve your core audience. And what I think happened with Groove Radio was it was trying to be um, too many things to too many people. You know, we were trying to be the the K Rock listeners' second choice. We were trying to be the pop station's second choice. Right. So uh, I didn't last till the very end. Uh, I was given my walking papers about two two and a half years in. It would last another six to eight months after I left. Uh, so I can't honestly give you the stories to how it crashed and burned. Uh, I know that uh, what was it CD one oh three one or what was that with the station that came in after it was an adult alternative stage. Yeah, it was Indy one oh three one, right? Indy one Indy one oh three one. Yeah, right. yeah that, it was like we finally have an, a house techno EDM station in LA that we've been wanting, you know, and some were like, right. oh, it's too early for the massive audience. But it, it was a special, special station and for you to be on it. I don't think that frequency ever got great ratings. There was something about the the different towers along the coast of California where it could never get into the, the inland, like you had trouble over in the valley picking it up. So uh, again, if you're not going to have great ratings, you got to sell your core audience. You got to bring the money in elsewhere. Right. And I felt that what we wound up doing towards the end was we were just really trying to mainstream it. Right. Rather than just really stay committed to the, the, the chemical brothers and the prodigies and the fat boy slims and the Mobies and things like that. Uh, we started playing very commercial pop. Right. And uh, if people were going to hear that, they could just go over to the pop station with the better signal 
I mean, when the, when the radio station first started, it was the buzz of L.A. and right. people were, were coming and checking us out like crazy. But uh, about two years in, it, uh, they just couldn't keep the momentum going. So when you transitioned back to Texas, what format uh, were you on? So my program director at The Edge, before I left for L.A., had moved across to a, a different frequency, 93.3 The Zone which was an adult alternative station. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I went from alternative out to L.A., 24 hours, techno rave, and then came back to Dallas as uh, a part-timer for an adult alternative station called it's The Zone. It was uh, KKZN, which then evolved into Merge Radio, KKMR, and then that changed to Classic Rock, which was KDBN, which was 93.3 The Bone. So okay. I wound up going through three different formats and I think about four or five different program directors at 93.3. But yeah, I, I came back from L.A. in 98 and started at The Zone, but that station only lasted for maybe six months. It became Merge. What format has uh, become your favorite after Groove Radio? Well, I, I got to say the, the reason I really liked Merge Radio it, it was because it was the really the, the first time the Edge had ever been given any competition. There had never been another alternative station in Dallas until Merge Radio. Okay. And Merge Radio, they branded it as Cool Rock Smart Pop. You know, so you'd hear like sneaker pimps, okay. but then you'd also hear like Train's first hit. Right. You know? So it was kind of an adult alternative, but a little, it's almost like what, what, what the NPR, the cool NPR stations are playing now, yeah. you know, it, it reported as a triple A station, but they also, uh, after much, uh, you know, prodding and poking, my program director gave me a specialty show on Sunday night and I positioned it much like uh, the show that Jason Bentley was doing in LA on KCRW Metropolis. Do you remember that show? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. So he's still doing it, even though he doesn't work at KCRW anymore as their morning guy. But I really liked the aesthetic that Jason had with that Metropolis show. So I pitched this kind of extension of the format where I was just going to do down-tempo, ethereal stuff on Sunday nights. Yeah. The show was only like an hour when it first started. It was called Submerge. Get it? Submerge. <laughs> so we played like Massive Attack. We played That's stuff. awesome. We awesome. Play. We played more Chiba. All that kind of really groovy down-tempo stuff. And it got a lot of notice. Here's the thing. The reason my program director let me have that show on Sunday night is because he knew we were already going to be flipping to classic rock about nine months later. So at that point, it didn't matter anymore, unbeknownst to the rest of us. I mean, I can't imagine doing anything else. You know, it's like this is a, a passion of mine. And here's my thing, Jeff. I started out as a DJ, uh, too. But I, it was, I think, like in the late 90s, you know, when I first bought my turntables and a mixer and I, I was listening to Jason Bentley and... Uh, you know, Richard Humpty Vision and uh, Linwood yeah, and the yeah. Swedish Eagle. I would get my cassette tape and I would plug in, you know, the male-female RCAs to the back of my dad's stereo and record uh, uh, a midnight mix. What of, about uh, Tony B? Remember DJ to Tony Yes, B? I remember Tony B. <laughs> yes, I do. DJ Irene, because they had the Irene, UC yeah, underground scene in Chicago. The poor man. Do you remember the poor man? Oh, my God. Yes, I remember the poor. I got stories yeah, with the, the poor man, Jeff. guy on Groove Radio. Again, Swedish Eagle knew all these people and brought them all to We had Mohammed Moretta from Miami on the radio station. Tony B was on the staff. It was a great group of people. So, Jeff, you've done a lot more than just music and radio because I want to talk about you're also the announcer for well, well two teams in Dallas, right? So you got yeah. the hockey team, you got the Dallas Stars, and then, of course, you got the Dallas Cowboys as well. How did you end up being the announcer for both those teams? 
Well, uh, it all it all goes back to radio and it all goes back to me growing up in New Jersey. You know, one of my passions was hockey because my dad used to take me to New York Rangers games at Madison Square Garden when I was a kid. That's awesome. Uh, I'd get on the train in New Jersey. We'd go to, you know, Penn Station in New York, go right up the stairs to Madison Square Garden. So when I moved to Dallas in 82, there was no pro hockey. But when the Stars moved to Dallas in 93, that had been like, you know, 11 years by then. I was jonesing, so I bought season tickets. I was one of the first early adapters for the hockey team in Dallas who was also a regular guy on the radio. Right. There weren't many radio people that really knew a lot about hockey in Dallas or embraced it the way I did. So I developed a relationship with the team. Fast forward to about 2005, when they had moved into their new building, the American Airlines Center from Reunion Arena, uh, the announcer at that time, the play-by-play guy, Ralph Strangis, asked me if I would mind consulting on the music, because he knew that I was a fan of hockey and that I was a fan of music. He wanted me to come in and kind of see what they were doing musically and what my thoughts were. Well, that evolved into me becoming the music director for the stars. That lasted a couple of seasons until I took the in-game host position, which, you know, I, I left the, the music behind and I was out as the, the yuck monkey in the crowd. Just, hey, you know, I'm here with Freddie from Dallas. Freddie, we're going to play a game. That lasted for a couple of years until our public address announcer, who'd been with the Stars for 18 seasons, decided to retire. And since I was a familiar face and voice in the arena already as the in-game host, the Stars slid me into the public address spot. Wow. The folks, yeah. And then the guy that was in charge of doing the Cowboys games came to a Stars game, saw me do the in-game host thing. And said, would you be interested in doing that for the Cowboys? And I thought, let me think about that for a while. Yes. (laughs) I went out to Jerry World and I I auditioned for Charlotte Jones, who's Jerry's daughter. She's in charge of all the the marketing. She's the chief brand officer for the Cowboys. She's an awesome person. Uh, And apparently she liked what I did. So I got the job as the Cowboys in-game host. And that lasted for several seasons. What was the audition like, Jeff, when you auditioned for them? (laughs) What was that like? Uh, well, it was, it was nerve wracking because if you've ever been out to AT&T stadium, you know, they've got the Cowboys vision screen, which is a 60 yard wide screen. It goes from the 20 to the 20. And so the first time you see yourself up on that thing, you're like, am I that fat? (laughs) And then the second time time, you realize there's like a second and a half delay. Like I'll talk talk and then hear myself hear myself on the sound system sound system and that's really hard to adapt so what you have to do in sports as a host because you're always working on a big pa system is you have to have an ifb which is an in-ear monitor so i really learned the the you know the ins and outs of doing interesting that yeah game. so when i got to the cowboys my audition they're like oh no we don't have an ifb for you i'm like are you crazy so that was nerve right basically if you kind of put your finger in your ear it acts like an ifb and uh, basically you want to hear yourself in real time because if you hear yourself a split second later sometimes you you, you talk like it's almost like you sound like you're you're hearing impaired right that's the last thing you want so anyway i survived that and uh and they put me to work as the in-game host uh, fast forward like six, seven seasons, the public address announcers for the Cowboys uh, moved on. Uh, sadly, we lost some. A couple passed away, too, which was a really terrible spring. Uh, the Cowboys held an internal audition process. And again, for some reason, I've never done NFL you know, public address. I never did 
hockey public address, but because I was a familiar face and voice in the arena as their in-game host, and I had a good working relationship with our game director, they, they asked me to do it. And I did it. They liked it. And I've been doing it now for three seasons. That's awesome. So you're, uh, you have pretty much taken over Dallas. You are the, if, if there's anybody, <laughs> any of my friends, I'm, I'm going to, you know, fly, fly over to Dallas. There's one guy you got to meet. The first person is Jeff. Well, listen, man, you know that in radio, uh, the jobs are few and far between. You know, it's what can you do that separates you from the rest? And more importantly, what can you do to stay relevant? Right. You know, the fact that I've been doing this for uh, 33 years, but no, the, the, the fact that I've been in for more than 30 years is you, you've got to find ways to adapt and reinvent yourself and stay relevant. Right. So people say, oh, Jeff, you're the rave guy. Eh, uh, maybe. Oh, Jeff, you're the classic rock guy. Eh, well, yeah. Maybe. Oh, Jeff, you're the alternative guy, right? Well, yeah. Wait, you're the Cowboys. Guy. You're the stars. Guy. You know what? Yeah. I'm just a fan of music. I'm a fan of sports. And knock on wood, I found a way to get paid for doing stuff that I love, that I'd want to do anyway. And it sounds like you have strong work ethic, too, though. It sounds like people love uh, your, your work ethic, your work habits, too. How, how is it work, though? That's the thing. I think if people, you know, thought, well, you can you can get paid to play records, on the air, they're not records anymore, they're MP3s or WAV files. Uh, you can get paid to sit and have the best seat in the in, in at a Cowboys game or a Stars game and get paid to talk about it. That's not work, you know? I mean, yeah, you put a microphone in somebody in front of somebody and tell them to go for it, but, you know, if they've never done it before, it's gonna freak them out. If if someone were to say, hey, you know, I, I love radio, I'm a fan of radio, like, you know, you and I have been, and they wanna get into radio, what do you think is, in your opinion, the best way to get started in a career in radio or just in broadcasting in general? Oh, that's a tough question because uh, the, the, the rules and the game has changed so much since it was it was really, you know, when I got into the scene and when I got into the business, it was about getting experience. And I still think that's it. But I think now more than ever, it's about developing relationships and it's about making sure that you're available and while people, it seems in 2021, frown on people working for free in the entertainment business, the more that you're available as an intern and the more that you're available to offer your time, right. uh, the more that you're going to get work. Because if you say, hey, I'm, I'm, if I don't get paid, I'm not going to work. Guess what? They're going to find somebody who's hungrier and who's willing to, whether you like it or not. And then what happens is if you're good at it, most likely somebody's going to call in sick somebody's going to move on to a bigger market, you know, and then there's going to be an opening. And if you've developed that relationship and you've shown them what it is you can do, maybe they'll put you on the overnight shift to see what you can do. Maybe they'll have you fill in as the, the sports and weather reporter on the morning show. Right. And then also I think it's key to develop a story, right? So what is your story? When you sit down for an interview, you can't just tell somebody, Oh, you know, my name's Jeff. I'm a hard worker. I'm going to be an asset to your company. You know, you want to be able to tell them a story about how you've how you've created a lane, not only for yourself, but how it's been able to benefit the folks you've, you've worked with and yeah, the team. Right. And, and, you know, the fact that uh, you're not just the, the, the classic rock guy, too. You yeah. Know, you're also the Cowboys guy and the Stars guy like you. You're a pilot. That's a great story. Yeah. If I'm sitting down hiring you, you know, you're going to stand out because you've been able to 
to, to do things that not not just anybody in radio has done. I always talk about how I snuck in the building at Kiss FM in LA to get my internship. And that's something that I, th- I don't think I would ever do now, obviously. And, you know, I mean, but I was 17, 18 years old. I have a question for you. Yes. So you, you grew up in LA, is that right? Yeah, born and raised here, yeah. Okay, so you know that LA is a destination. People work their entire careers to get to New York or LA or Dallas, which is a top five market. You were able to start your career in the number two market in the country. I was able to start in the number five market in the country. Do you get folks coming up to you and saying, Freddie, how do I get in the business? You tell them, well, you got to go out to Rancho Cucamonga and be the night guy and develop your story and get some ratings. Once right. you've got ratings there in a secondary, I mean, do you get, do you still get people asking you why they can't start in LA? If it happened to you, it should happen to them, right? See, what we have here is kind of like what New York has as they have their Long Island, right? So you have a smaller market or a smaller suburb that you can kind of start your career in. And I was able to because my first on-air gig was at 991 KGGI, and that's in Riverside, San Bernardino. Oh, Riverside. Yeah. Yes. yes. So that, exactly. that was my te- Which would be like going to Midland, Odessa here yes. or Waco or Yes, something. exactly. And you came to Dallas to get your full-time on-air gig, right? You're right. Then you parlay, you know, here's the thing too, people getting in the business, you better be ready to move. Right. Because Freddie's been able to stay in LA for a long time, or I've been able to spend 30, you know, besides those two years in LA, the 30, you know, 31 of those years have been in Dallas. I've been very lucky. I've not bounced all around the country. And that's something you have to really make clear to people that want to get in the business is, you, you know, you, a formats change, your bosses get fired, new people get hired. You're going to be asked to do things you might not want to do. You're going to be asked to move around. Luckily, these days, you can voice track from just about anywhere in the country. But uh, right. you, better, you better be ready. And you can't start when you're 35. You know, I, I talk to people that, you know, are going to broadcast school and they're in their early 30s and they think they're going to break into radio. Well, they're married. They've got kids. They've got a mortgage. Yeah. What's going to happen when your format changes and you're told you need to move to uh, Seattle or something? Right. What I see you doing on Instagram, I mean, you're giving people shout outs. You're doing play by plays for the uh, for the stars. It's really cool. People can hit you up like anybody can message you, Jeff, and then uh, get a personalized yeah. message or what? How does that work? Yeah. So uh, on Instagram, I'm at Jeff K net, which is kind of an extension of my, my, my website, which is Jeff where you can learn more about me. But here's the thing. I, I, I try to think, what is it? What is the unique content that I can offer to people? Well, I'm very fortunate that I have the position as the public address announcer for the Cowboys and the stars. So what would people like to see from that position? So that's why I kind of, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bring them the views from center ice or if I'm going to announce a goal call, turn turn the camera around on myself and, and show people what that looks like. You know, kind of put them in that seat. Right. And I think that that gets folks excited. And the fact that I'm I'm you know a 30 year radio guy, of course, I want to keep these great albums and these these classic records top of mind. So you'll see me uh, every day tell you what albums are celebrating anniversaries or what rockers or DJs are celebrating birthdays. Uh, it, you know, it's kind of time consuming, but once you do it for a year, then you've got that archive and you can go back and look at it. But people say, oh, you make me feel so old, Jeff. I don't care that that record came out 40 years ago. Well, first of all, I say you're not old, you're old school. Second of all, I want an excuse to be able to remember that today is the anniversary of The Cure's 17 seconds. Right. right? 
right? Yeah. So if we didn't put that out, that it was released on this day in 1981, uh, which is what, 40 years ago. So then how would we, you know, I guess you could just top of mind think I'm a Cure fan. I'm going to go listen to that. But if you follow me on social every day, you're going to be reminded of a great record, a great rock star, a great DJ. You might get a little content from my uh, Pomeranian. I have a blue Merle Pomeranian whose name is Bowie because he's got one blue eye like like my hero. That's David, awesome. David Bowie. Hey, wearing a David yeah. Bowie shirt for those who can't see. That's awesome. <laughs> I just got a new puppy too. I you, you probably heard it. A brand new puppy named General Patton. And uh, it's a it's a mini uh, Doberman, and uh, nice. like three four you months know, my old. But yeah, is a veterinarian too. So that's another that's another thing that I feel blessed is uh, I never had to worry about my kid getting good grades growing up because I used to put you know uh, markers in front of her like honey get straight A's I'll get you a laptop I had to buy a damn laptop honey get straight A's you'll get a car for your sweet sixteen had to buy her a damn car for a sweet sixteen by the way. Billy the Kid emceed her Sweet 16. Just FYI. Oh, that's awesome. That is I mean, awesome. I, occasionally, I can I, I have some juice. I can get <laughs> stars like Billy the Kid to, to emcee my, my daughter's Sweet 16 party. You and I have a lot of musical uh, 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 favorites in common. Uh, just off right. the top of your head, like two or three artists, your all-time favorite. Obviously, you said David Bowie's one of them. Who right. else? Bowie, Bowie's, uh, Bowie's an all-timer. Um, obviously you and I are big Smiths, Morrissey fans. <laughs> Huge. Uh, yes. I, yeah. I was fortunate to see the Smiths, the one and only time they played the Bronco bowl in Dallas. Smiths only played Dallas one time, September 5th, 1986. Uh, my wife, I lifted her up on the stage at the end of the show. She peeled Morrissey's set list off the stage. Awesome. It is now framed along with the ticket stub. Awesome. Hanging on my wall in my office. And then when September 5th comes around, if you follow me on Instagram at Jeff K. Net, you will see a photo of that set list. So from epic. I, that's the kind of stuff I and love. People say, well, if you could only bring one band's discography on a, on a desert island, who would it be? And I tell them, they're like, really? And that band is XTC. Are you a fan of XTC? You probably know the mayor of Simpleton or Dear God. Yes, 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 yes. So XTC is one of my favorite bands, all timer, because to me, they're like the Beatles of my generation. Right. They started in the late 70s, went all the way until uh, just around the start of the aughts. And uh, their sound has evolved. And it's just beautiful. You know, the, the songwriting. Anyway, I'm not going to bore you. But if you get a chance uh, on Spotify or, or, or iTunes, uh, do a deep dive on the band XTC, and you're going to be surprised. A lot of great songs. And by the way, I want to thank you for your time because I know you're doing updates. Uh, usually do updates for the Dallas Stars right now. So I don't want to take well, too I much of your time. I took the night off for you, buddy. And last check, the Stars were losing like 3 nothing already. So it was a, it was a good night to <laughs> okay, stop good. nipping blue. All right. Well, that, that works out. Well, hey, Jeff, uh, this is a conversation I want to keep going. And I do want to talk to you again in the future. And Jeff, you were uh, an incredible host to me while I was in Dallas. So I want to thank you for that, sincerely. And, uh, um, and uh, you're good people. Let's talk again soon because uh, I, I'm sure we have a lot more to talk about. Yeah, well, as you can tell, I have no problem talking. Jeff K, so how can we get a hold of you? Right, so Jeff K Net for all my music and pop culture stuff on Twitter and Instagram. But if you want uh, focused hockey content on Twitter, it's Jeff K underscore stars and Jeff K underscore cowboys for the cowboy stuff. So I have three Twitter feeds, which I know is way too much, but I find that the stars fans love just the star stuff. They don't care when I post Morrissey stuff. So that's why I keep that all on the Jeff. The Jeff <laughs> that, K that's Net. what Freddie cares about. And by the way, if you anybody goes to Dallas, 
uh, and they go to a, a, a Stars game or a Cowboys game and you hear that voice and you see the person on the screen, that's probably Jeff. And uh, uh, he's a great guy to know. So, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. And I hope to talk Bring to you soon. Appreciate it, bud.